Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about questions we ought to ask ourselves. This is the 25th of our inappropriate conversations, and I will say right up front that it's about time I took a break. I intend to take a week off, use that time to sort of recharge the batteries, and also to warm up for what will be a Labor Day special, an episode that will have a lot of explicit language and perhaps more humor than I'm you know, typically injecting into these inappropriate conversations. On the way out, though, I'd like to give you some thoughts to ponder, and I considered calling this particular show an inappropriate conversation about nothing, or at least about nothing in particular. So what I figured I would do was go back to a time in college when I made some notes about some things that I had on my mind, some questions, some difficult questions, some questions worth pondering over. And the idea is, do you do this as well? Do you have moments where you actually stop to think about Questions that don't necessarily have a complete answer, where there's not going to be a conclusion. It's not something that you can look up in a dictionary or in an encyclopedia. And even when you get all the information that you think you need, it's still a challenging question and therefore one that doesn't necessarily get closed off and resolved. I don't necessarily want to refer to these ideas as Zen concepts. This isn't about meditation. It isn't about you know, getting lost in thought. It's more the opposite idea of focusing on a particular thought and seeing if my answers to questions like these change over time. Well, I've always been the kind of person who does go down these mental cul-de-sacs and spend a little bit of time digging more deeply, perhaps than some people do, into these questions. And and eventually, near the end of college, I imagine, somewhere in the second half of, of my college experience, I decided to write a few of them down. And the, the ones that I've still kept over the years, uh, I've just called 10 questions. Again, I'd say I'd hit the questions in no particular order, but I actually have a sequence to them. I don't think the sequence makes any difference, but I might as well rattle them off in the 1 through 10 order that they appear on this page. First question, does God's knowledge include an awareness of what time it is at any given moment? Answer this question using the theory of necessary being as presented by St. Anselm in the Middle Ages. These are the kind of questions I'm talking about, and I'm not going to give you my answers. Uh, I'm not 100% sure on some of these questions that I've gotten to the point in my life where I'm ready to say I've got the answers. These are questions which maybe I'll continue knocking around for a few more decades if I'm, if I'm around a few more decades. But in this case, the first one dealing with religious, uh, a religious question and looking to some of the great philosophical thinkers in Christianity at a time when philosophy and Christianity weren't viewed as necessarily being polar opposites of each other, as uh, unfortunately at times they are today. And, you know, looking at the question of time, because I mentioned uh, in, in two or three shows so far that it's about time I got around to the idea of time. I'm not there yet. I'm still asking the question. Number two, if a football team can be functionally divided into units, offense, defense, and special teams, which unit is the most important to the success of a team in an average season? Use examples in recent history to support your argument. Now, first off, American football was what I had on my mind, 
I think that in the case of uh, other European football, of soccer, offense, defense, and special teams are all functions which, like kind of like in basketball or in hockey to a degree, you, we expect everybody to play a role. Every player on the ice in hockey needs to do some back-checking and some forechecking. But in this case, with American football, if you've watched any of it, the, uh, the units change completely. You could have a guy who snaps the ball to the quarterback on offense, but when it comes time to, uh, to put in the punting team or the field goal team, uh, you tend to get a completely different player performing that same center task in the football team. So you have these three different units. They practice independently of each other, and most fans either attach themselves to the offense, attach themselves to the defense. I'm in that second camp. I'm, I'm a defensive football fan. And there may be people who identify with special teams as well. I hesitate to suggest that the special teams ought to be regarded as third, because if you were a fan of Florida State football, at the time that I was writing this list together, the Florida State Seminoles in college football might want to cite special teams as the most important. They lost some big rivalry games and perhaps even some national championships because of their inability to actually deliver results from their special teams. The funny thing is that the question calls for using recent uh, historic examples to support the argument. And uh, I have a date stamp on this that says that it was May 4th, um, but it was May 4th a lot of years ago. It would be very different examples if I actually had examples. But again, this is a list of questions. It's not a list of answers. Number three, what does the prominence of deism in the 18th century tell us about the formation of the U.S. Constitution? You may use the names of founding fathers to illustrate your answers if you wish. Now, because I'm mentioning deism, that could be a religious question, but I don't view it that way. I don't even necessarily view it as a political question. To me, this is a historic you know, focus. Uh, what in history does the formation of the United States of America, the writing of our Constitution, the ratification of our Constitution, and the, you know, not prevalence necessary, but the very strong presence of deism have to say about the formation of the United States of America, and perhaps particularly the formation of the Constitution? Question four, are you in support or against the validity of Ayn Rand's theory of egoism, bearing in mind that non-materialistic selfishness is a given? So this whole notion of the uh, Rand's idea of the inherent value of selfishness, but tempered with the idea that even if you're going to argue against selfishness, you've got to acknowledge that if nothing else, a survival instinct presents a selfishness of sorts. So once you get past that notion of a non-materialistic selfishness, do uh, the theories of Rand make sense? And to my way of thinking, I didn't add this to the question at the time, doesn't matter whether you're referring to her ideas as represented in the fiction that she wrote, uh, books like The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, or in her nonfiction. The bottom line is, they're her ideas, and they're really present in somewhat obvious ways throughout her writing. Number five. Do you believe that the Federal Communications Commission should continue to enforce the Fairness Doctrine? Why or why not? What impact does your answer assume television has upon society? And what should be done regarding that impact if there is one? Now, the Fairness Doctrine is a very different idea now than it was maybe 20 years ago, or certainly 25, 30 years ago. And if you're not an American, this may be a completely unfamiliar concept. Again, not my intention today to present answers more my idea to present questions. But to me, if you're not a follower of the media in the United States, or at the very least, a more grandly media law internationally, this one's not going to be of much interest. But 
as a person uh, training to become a journalist, that was a very important question to me and, and one that I think I did spend quite a bit of time thinking about it. And it's not an easy question either because the idea of fairness doctrine begs the question of fairness in both the political realm and in the realm of our media. So it's, it's not an easy question and worth looking at, frankly, if you're curious. Even if the fairness doctrine is morphed into something that's relatively benign or almost non-existent right now, uh, what was it back then and what did it mean to us? Number six, should the number of presidential terms in the United States be limited as it currently is? Why or why not? What lessons can be learned from other countries in answering this question? Use specific examples. Does the philosophical theory regarding the existence of possible worlds have any relevant bearing on this question? Why or why not? So again, this one is a political question, somewhat historical. It is looking at the uh, certain U.S. amendments and the way we elect presidents and some of the things that have happened in the last maybe 100 years or even less than 100 years that you know influenced us to decide what to do about presidential term limits. And I would extend it beyond that to say, if you're going to make an argument that presidential term limits are a good idea, go right ahead. But why have we not extended that to, con- to the Congress? Why, why is the House and Senate exempt for some reason? Why no term limits for, for justices in the U.S. Supreme Court in particular? So there's some questions that are out there. And, and if you say, well, no, hang on a second, I got the opposite point of view. I think that it's perfectly okay that justices sit for life. Um, I think it's perfectly okay, especially in the House and the Senate, where people go back to the polls and elect and reelect and reelect. Well, then why, why doesn't that work for the president? Something is inconsistent in the American electoral system, where we have one branch of government that has strict term limits, other branches of government where people can and do serve for life, and other branches of government where the electoral process is a uh, kind of a is on a reassessment mode every two years or every six years. Is that a good design? Uh, it certainly wasn't the original design. And if it's not a good design, what should we be doing instead? That's the kind of question that's there. And the kind of questions that I think that is responsible for citizens to ask. We should be thinking about these things. We should have a point of view about these things. Because you know what? Somewhere in the midst of the Carter administration, the Reagan administration, and the second Bush administration, the George W. Bush administration, these ideas were pretty heavily on my mind. And I I bet you it doesn't take too much imagination to figure out why. Um, I will only offer this, and again, I'm not trying to answer these questions or lean you in any particular direction. But whether you liked Ronald Reagan or not, Ronald Reagan would have been elected again. Uh, I wonder if most people realize this, that you know, back in 1988, when George H.W. Bush ran for uh, president and won, he wouldn't have run had there not been term limits. Because had there not been term limits, Ronald Reagan would have run again, and I believe he would have won again. I think he would have won again even without debating, because I'm not sure he would have been capable of managing a, a debate. Even the kind of softball debates that we get today if only because I believe he was already suffering from at least some level of dementia, enough of a level that it would have been noticeable. And much like the uh, way FDR handled his, uh, his issues with his ability to walk by essentially colluding with the press to hide those things or de-emphasize them, especially during the time of war. In this case, I think, I don't know whether the media would have cooperated, but the Reagans would have done everything they could to disguise the fact that Ronald Reagan wasn't thinking as clearly as perhaps he once did. Question number seven. 
In what instances should the federal government intervene into state affairs? Explain your answer using the U.S. Constitution and specific references to history. Okay, this one, I think, more of a legal question. It's somewhat of a history question. It certainly has political elements to it, but I view this one as more of a, of a law question. Where do the rights of uh, states begin and end? Where, where does the U.S. government hold sway? The U.S. Constitution, particularly the Bill of Rights, tells one story, but I think our practical experience tells us a different story. So the question is, which one's right? It's literally a federalism question. And I will grant you, it's a federalism question that is literally going to mean nothing to an international audience. I apologize. Okay, number eight. From the Ingmar Bergman film, Through a Glass Darkly, how would the filmmaker's technique have been influenced if he could have shown the molestation scene rather than merely implying it? Make a critical assessment regarding the potential change in the film. Would the film be better if changed? Was it better in the form that it was made? What evidence is there that Bergman would have changed the scene if he could, or would have left it the same? And what does this response tell us about censorship and filmmaking? Now, the only thing I will say about Through a Glass Darkly is that if you think you'd like to ponder this question with me, I strongly encourage you to uh, take a break and watch this film. It was made early 1960s, I believe before my lifetime, but... It's been around as long as I've been around, let's put it that way. And I consider it to be one of the, one of the true classics of cinema, at least uh, the style of cinema that you see from Bergman. This is as good as it gets, representing his work during that era. I've heard uh, film reviews from people who suggest that Winter Light is a better film in the Faith trilogy. And certainly The Silence offers some more directly explicit and controversial material. It's interesting visually in ways, I think, that maybe uh, the other two aren't. But beyond any doubt in my mind, Through a Glass Darkly is a pinnacle achievement, not just for Bergman's Faith trilogy, but also uh, for that entire period of his filmmaking work. But it does raise a question, because there is a scene in the film that, if it were shot today by another filmmaker, would have been, if not more graphic, at least more obviously displayed. It would not be left for the character to tell us that something inappropriate happened on some level, we would have been shown it. And the thing I'm not sure about, because again, there's no right answer to this question. This is conjecture. Uh, what if Bergman had made this movie for the first time 25 years later? Would he have done things differently? And what does it say about him if he would have done things differently? Those are, those are questions that have no actual answer, but they're interesting to consider, if only because we're dealing with a filmmaker with his 30-plus year career has gone through lots of twists and turns. And some very interesting detours along the way. So he's well worth the time. And Through Glass Darkly is one of the best films made during that period. Question number nine. Given that abortion is a negative thing that everyone would prefer did not happen, set up a comprehensive plan for the elimination of abortion. Bear in mind that this implies eliminating the need for abortion or logically demonstrating that the need will naturally disappear. I don't know whether this is good news or bad news, whether this is maybe just nothing more than fair warning, but I figure somewhere in the next 40 to 50 weeks, I've got three different shows devoted just to this issue. And it's devoted just to this issue because I feel like this question I've just raised, number nine, has not been answered. Because of the way society deals with this question, we either ignore it, if you're a true centrist, or we entrench ourselves in, a, in one camp or the other, 
And we're not asking ourselves the honest question, because I would say that most people would be very pleased if we could come up with a world where abortion was unnecessary. The problem is most people can't even allow themselves to imagine such a world. Now, maybe that's because it's unrealistic and it's not, it's not something that's ever going to happen. But if you could imagine such a world, the question of how we get there is a very important question to answer. If we're going to be so politically divided over it, if it's going to create so much you know, anger and even violence, we owe ourselves thinking seriously about the question and answering it seriously. And, and I'll give you a hint as to what I think on this one. Passing the right law is not the right answer. Finally, question number 10. These questions haven't been all that fun, necessarily, unless you're a football fan. I mean, if, you're, if you, like me, are a football fan, at least one of these questions is a lot of fun. But here's the last question in my short list here. What is sexual perversion? How would you define a sexually perverse act? Give examples if you like. Set up a system of absolutes to guide in distinguishing perverse from, quote, natural, unquote, sexual activities. Make sure that the logic in your scale is consistent. Justify your answers with examples to back up your rules. And uh, make sure that your responses are rational. That last part, I think, is perhaps the trickiest. Making sure that your responses are rational. When it comes to looking at things that are so emotionally charged, and where we personally have a lot of identity invested in them, it's very hard to be both objective and rational about a question like, what is sexual perversion? I'm tempted to say it's way too easy to say there is no such thing. In fact, I would challenge anybody who thinks there is no such thing to challenge yourself. There is something that you find completely unacceptable. So if you've decided that there's no such thing as perversion, how do you word that thing that you reject? And it could just be that you interpret this in the, in the realm of violence, where you say, well, the sex itself is not the issue. It's just that if it's a violent act, if it's rape, if it's molestation, if it's pedophilia, you know, if you've got, if it's bestiality, but there's something in there where we draw a line and we say, this is okay and that's not. And a lot of our conflict over sexual ethics and sexual politics are that we all draw this line, but we draw the line differently. And I'm not sure the people who pretend they don't draw a line are doing much good to the conversation because they probably do draw a line somewhere. They're just calling the line something different. And maybe words like perverse and natural and unnatural are completely unhelpful. They're loaded phrases. But I actually use them intentionally here for that reason. And that's why I put quotation marks around natural to, to kind of give a hint that, yes, I'm acknowledging there's a lot of nonsense in the terminology that we use or the meanings we pour into the terminology that we use. But hidden behind that nonsense really is a genuine question. Is there a line to be drawn between acceptable and unacceptable sexual practice? Surely each one of us have a permission we've given ourselves to do things sexually that we just don't do. Why is that line there? Is it opportunity? We used to have a saying when I worked in retail that preventing shoplifting involved understanding the, the triangle of behavior, that there are three things you have to know to understand how to, how to or whether you even can intervene or circumvent somebody's behavior. You're not going to have a crime occur, in other words, unless three things are in place, ability, desire, and opportunity. And what we would teach uh, in terms of shoplifting prevention is you can't necessarily take away someone's ability to shoplift. Um, you take it as a given that people are going to have hands, they're going to have baggy clothing, they're going to have, you know, uh, razor blades to cut off, sensor tags, whatever. Ability to steal is pretty hard to negotiate. 
Desire is even harder to negotiate because at least from the perspective of ability, you can see what people are doing physically, but you can't see into their minds, you can't see into their hearts. So you can't control the ability and you can't control the desire. And all you can really do from a shoplifting prevention perspective is try to manage the opportunity. You set up a store in such a way that um, the traffic patterns work to provide the right kind of visibility to the right parts of the store so that if you have a high theft item, uh, very expensive, very small, very negotiable, very resaleable, that you've got that in a place where your, if nothing else, your store's customer service pattern or your traffic flow pattern protects you. You don't want anybody doing a grab and dash, but at the same time, you don't want to put something off on a corner where the person at the cash register or the person answering a telephone doesn't have visibility to it. So sort of that idea that there's there's three elements there. And uh, in, in your own personal life, just even to ask a sexual question, in your own personal life, there's certain things you don't do because you don't have the ability. You just don't have the right. You don't have the right parts. You're not equipped. And there's certain things you're not going to do because you don't desire to do them. And that's that's a question that I think is in here. That's a good part of this question to think about. But what about the um, what about the opportunity? You know, are there things that you simply denied yourself the opportunity to do? You're able to do it, and you want to do it, but you don't take advantage of the opportunities when the opportunities are there. And what does it say if there's certain sexual behaviors that you've divided up into? opportunities you will take advantage of versus opportunities that you won't take advantage of. And what does it mean when we look at that and we try to contemplate what that's like when you sum it up to the total of society and look at it from that perspective? See, the thing about these questions that I like, and these are just mine, and in that respect, they may not be all that good. Some of them aren't very applicable. If you're not an American football fan or at least familiar with the game, there's a question in here that's pointless for you. And there's several questions that are maybe a touch too American, to 1980s and early 90s American in particular in terms of the state of our politics and the way I love the way our laws work. But the key is not my questions. These are the kinds of questions that you ought to ask yourself. So my real question today in this particular inappropriate conversation is what do you do when you contemplate? What do you do when you simply take the time to say, I want to shut aside the immediate problem facing me. I'm going to ignore the dripping sink that I need to, uh, you know, that I need to work on. I need to ignore the question of when I'm going to make it to the post office and, and whether or not it's going to rain before I mow the lawn. I'm going to ignore all that stuff. I want to think about something that is completely outside of any sort of need to have an immediate answer. I'm going to think about questions that I don't necessarily have to answer. And when you do that, what kind of questions do you come up with? And if you don't do that, here's a good question. Why not? Just when you thought it was safe to go back to the library, Books You Should Read is coming back to simplysyndicated.com, this time with a little bit of a different approach, but still fueled by you. So send in your reviews of books you love or even books you don't love. We'd like to hear them all. Meanwhile, I'll be hosting every week. My name is Kennedy, and I'll be talking to you very soon. Okay, it's 8.59 p.m., somewhere in the 21st century, and I'm about to introduce my different drummer this week, Terry Gilliam. From time to time, people ask me what my favorite movie is. Why not? I love films. I find a great deal to contemplate in them. And when I was at my university, I worked for the college newspaper and spent some time writing 
film reviews and film criticism. So the question makes sense. Hey, Greg, what's your favorite film? And I almost never have a good, clean answer to that. It's not that I change my mind a lot. It's just that the variety of films that I enjoy are so extreme that it almost feels wrong to pick any one. But I will tell you this. My all-time favorite surrealist film made during the talking era in the English language was shot by Terry Gilliam. But we'll get to Brazil in just a minute. First off, I got some biases here, and I'm going to own them right up front. I really like the work of Monty Python. And the Flying Circus television program would have been greatly diminished without the interludes that were provided by and large by Terry Gilliam's animation. The most surreal aspects of the Monty Python show often included Gilliam's touches, although uh, the Dadaist touches were there from really every member of the troupe. When I first began watching film and taking film seriously, it was around the time that Monty Python was putting out the movies that we consider to be the classic Monty Python films. And uh, the 20-minute, seems like it's 15 or 20-minute introductory segment to uh, The Meaning of Life might be the first Terry Gilliam film that I ever saw. I didn't see Jabberwocky when it was released, and I view Monty Python and the Holy Grail and the rest of The Meaning of Life to be a genuinely collaborative effort. With that you know, crimson you know, insurance program, the the introductory section for the meaning of life was truly Gilliam off doing his own thing, and quite literally, in my mind, warming himself up for a career that would later include films like Time Bandits, The Fisher King, Twelve Monkeys, and Brazil. I'm naming my favorites there. I've seen The Brothers Grimm and think less of it, less of it than these other films. And uh, I haven't yet seen Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. But I will say that if I only had seen Time Bandits, Brazil, The Fisher King, and Twelve Monkeys, I'd be in very good shape as a Terry Gilliam fan. There may be some who really challenge the idea that I would say that uh, Terry Gilliam is a surrealist filmmaker. He describes himself as being somebody who loves magic realism. Uh, the idea that, that you've got a fantasy sort of a fiction going on, and that even though there's magical and wonderful and probable things occurring, it's still very rooted in a realistic situation. I refer to that as neo-surrealism. And because I don't want to necessarily spoil the film Brazil, I think, Brazil uh, I think highly enough of Brazil that I would prefer to leave it alone, I'll instead spoil the film Jacob's Ladder. So if you haven't seen the movie Jacob's Ladder, and you don't want it, the ending to be ruined for you, you know, give me about 30 seconds here, and I'll give you a cue in, in just a second. I'm going to tell enough about Jacob's Ladder to talk about an entire genre of not just filmmaking but fiction that doesn't necessarily officially have the title Neo-Surrealism, but I call it Neo-Surrealism. So, in Jacob's Ladder, pausing to let people know that I'm about to spoil the devil out of this thing, the movie appears to be an adventure of sorts, kind of an interpersonal uh, apocalypse coming back from the Vietnam War and having an unsuccessful attempt to settle back into his life. What you realize by the time the show is over, though, is that Jacob's Ladder has been entirely set in a mash unit of that war where this man's not making it out. That you're seeing the dying, hallucinatory, nightmarish, apocalyptic visions of somebody during that particular military conflict. He doesn't survive the show. So, if you didn't know that about Jacob's Ladder, and you're now sorry you know that about Jacob's Ladder, I'm sorry, but it's really important that this element of filmmaking kind of be there, because 
too often it's, it's handled badly. It's fumbled clumsily. As much as I enjoyed parts of the movie Sliding Doors, I really never could get over the idea that the movie had insulted my intelligence by making it not just clear and crystal clear, but ridiculously clear that, yes, she might have made the train and she might have missed the train. If you haven't seen Sliding Doors or if you haven't seen it in a while, just watch that moment in the first 15 minutes or 10 or 15 minutes and you'll see what I mean. We really didn't have to rewind the film and then show her coming all the way back to the train, did we? Please tell me that we're not that ignorant to filmic conventions, that that was a necessary step, that we had to see it that way. You know, and there's other films that have a similar sort of take on it, uh, sort of a surreal, you know, what if kind of possible world theory to them. I mentioned possible world theory in one of the questions earlier. Donnie Darko certainly presents that idea. Um, what if reality had branched off in this direction instead of that direction? That sort of thing. Most of them do it without a whole lot of profundity. But I find the real thing that distinguishes the movie Brazil for me is instead of presenting conspiracy theories that didn't ultimately bear a lot of fruit, like Jacob's Ladder, or present me an either-or where the either-or was so obvious that it almost didn't need to be presented, like sliding doors. In the case of Brazil, Brazil is dealing with something which has incredible gravity and incredible seriousness. I don't believe I've ever seen a film so effectively depict and denounce torture. And, yeah, you've got to give Gilliam credit. Plus, he never lost a sense of humor throughout the thing. There's a moment in, in, the, uh, in the film where one of the friends of the main character uh, tells him that his wife has just had some plastic surgery done and he'd, he'd really like to see it. And um, he looks at the man's wife and, and you can tell he doesn't recognize what's happened. He doesn't, he doesn't know the surgery that's been performed. And uh, he says, come on. He, he, his friend is prodding him for a comment, wanting his opinion. And says, you know what? You know, they, don't, don't you know? Don't you remember how they used to stick out? And he goes, well, yeah, I didn't want to say anything, but I hardly believe they were real. And the lady goes, what, my ears? You didn't believe my ears were real? <laughs> you know, so, yeah, the sense of humor was there the whole time. But underneath there is an undercurrent of saying, hey, this guy's escapist fantasies may not just be the pursuit of a woman. They may not just be trying to get away from the pressures that he's under to, you know, to play the corporate game and to advance up the ladder. It may be that he, he's trying to escape from something far more, far more serious than that. So Brazil really had a story to tell. I think 12 Monkeys tells its story just as compellingly and maybe even on some levels more entertainingly from a science fiction perspective. But 12 Monkeys, in my mind, has a couple of moments that I don't exactly like. And maybe it's because it was adapted. It came from an original French film, which in, in its own way is quite brilliant. Because what Gilliam did was took kind of the notion of that film and crafted an adventurous sci-fi surrealist adventure out of it. And uh, if people question whether 12 Monkeys was potentially surrealist, let me just offer a theory about 12 Monkeys. So you can know how deeply into Gilliam am I. I'm so deeply into Gilliam that I've got theories about his movies that he may not have even thought of. But in the moments when you first meet the Brad Pitt character and the Bruce Willis character, James Cole, has been placed in a mental hospital, on more than one occasion, mental patients and some of the psychiatrists mentioned the condition of mental divergence. The idea that you could actually be in your head living such a parallel life in a parallel world that the world you're living in doesn't seem real. It's, it's as if it's non-existent or from another time or you're the whole, you know, taking that creature from another planet idea far, far, far too literally. And I would just offer that 12 Monkeys has two possible interpretations. One is the one that's presented to us that 
He's a man from the future, leveraging the best science available after a, a, a great catastrophe, for want of a better word, to come back in time and try to do things to, to save humanity. Or he could be that he is just a patient in a mental hospital and that is his mental divergence. And the question becomes, which ones of his time jumps are reality and which things are not reality? In 12 Monkeys, is the future that we're presented with now and everything that we see in the dramatic elements of the story, the past, or are his experiences in the mental hospital and what we might call the modern day now and all of his experiences in the future in a kind of post-apocalyptic world nothing more than a mental divergence these are the kind of ideas these are the kind of thoughts that gilliam inspires and one of the things i think that drive people nuts about terry gilliam first off he's a little bit all over the map second off he's a guy with a vision he's very stubborn he's going to put his his ideas on film and that may or may not be what the studio wanted may or may not be what the actors think they signed up for and it may or may not be what is actually going to get him a return on his investment but i actually like the fact that even when he has worked inside hollywood or on behalf of Hollywood, he's produced films that Hollywood itself doesn't even know what to do with. Quoting from the book The Battle of Brazil by Jack Matthews, I just want to kind of rattle off a few of the titles for the film that Universal wanted to provide because they didn't know what to do with the name Brazil. Um, as songs go, it's, it's, not, it's not unknown. If you, if you know much about the history of music, this is not an unfamiliar tune. But most movie-going audiences probably did not connect the name of the film with the song even after hearing it on the soundtrack the first time for uh, maybe most people thought it was going to be set in south america or something to that effect so rather than name it brazil universal pictures had different ideas like if osmosis who are you or the ball bearing electro memory circus buster or something more simple like show me your dream or someday soon daydreams and night tripper Nude Descending Bathroom Scale, The Escalator Doesn't Stop at Your Station. This is the marketing department. These are the people that the movie studio pays to be able to come up with film titles, marketing pitches, short blurbs, you know, and sometimes they're brilliant. I mean, I really think um, the uh, the drive-in, we call them drive-in flicks, the, the Jim Wynorski's drive-in flick, Chopping Mall, with the blurb on the poster that said, where shopping can cost you an arm and a leg. I mean, some of these are brilliant completely stumped these people could not be further from having the first idea of what to do with a terry gilliam film i can't think of a better definition for a different drummer than somebody whose art exceeds the ability of even the marketing people to describe and advertise so i'm going to cite terry gilliam if i'm going to sit down and watch a movie by somebody where i'm expecting to be entertained but to be left with a lingering unease and perhaps a lot to think about where the visuals are going to be every bit as important as any words spoken, I'm probably going to look toward a Terry Gilliam film. And I've tipped my hat a little bit that my favorite is Brazil. But to be honest with you, only Time Bandits, of all the films of his I've seen twice, only Time Bandits is guilty of looking just a little bit dated. So my different drummer, on my way to a little bit of time, kicking back, watching some movies, relaxing, recharging the batteries, is Terry Gilliam. I don't expect to be very far from my computer as I get ready for a Labor Day show and uh, take a little time doing it. So don't hesitate to send me a note if you've got questions of your own, things you'd like me to ponder, if you'd like to add to my list of questions, or heck, if you've got good answers to my list of questions, I'll have time to read them. 
I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. And the website is HTTP colon slash slash inappropriate conversations dot podbean dot com. Thanks for listening. Okay, I'm interrupting the closing music to say that we're not done yet with this show. First off, I want to thank, as always, Kevin McLeod for the wonderful tunes and melodies and drum interludes that I'm able to use not just for the show in general, but also for the different drummer segments. But before I go today, I want to give a quick shout-out for a new release that has got me as interested in music as I've been in a long, long time. Craig Bevan has a new CD out called I Think We've Made It. It takes me back a long, long time for me to find a new artist with a debut release that has engrossed me as much as this one has. Uh, I could throw out names like Sophie B. Hawkins, Tony Rich Project, Maria McKee, but that would only be telling you what my musical taste is like, and my musical taste may not be at all helpful. Instead, what I'm going to urge you to do is go to a website called craigbevanmusic.com www.craigbevanmusic.com C-R-A-I-G-B-E-V-A-N From there, you'll get a chance to download a free track. It should still be available. Um, A track called Feelings I Find Hard to Show. And at the bottom of his website, you also can find links there to all things Craig Bevan. You can check out what he's doing on Facebook, on MySpace, and on Twitter. Unfortunately, these are three avenues that I personally don't explore. So my experience of Craig's new CD has been the old-fashioned way, uh, having a disc, uh, listening to it, putting it on my MP3 player. And what I found has happened is, once it got onto my MP3 player, I stopped listening to anything else in my new playlist. And instead of going to my new playlist the last couple of weeks, I've just been going to the artist menu and letting the MP3 player play Craig's disc. If you'd like to know more about my feelings on this CD, especially after you've had a chance to hear it, I've got a blog post at the Inappropriate Conversations Podbean site that goes perhaps on and on about it. But I think, again, once you hear the CD, you'll understand why. The number one thing I want to do is something I've never done before. I want to play an entire track and let this be our closing, our outro music for today. And the reason that I want to do it is, as long as it is still the month of August, you have a chance to make a difference. Once you hear this Craig Bevan CD, you'll understand my enthusiasm. And until then, you have a chance not only to download the free track I just told you about, but also you can go to YouTube, listen to some of his other stuff. The music video for the title track, I think we've made it, is out there. That's the song I want to play here on the end of this show. And also he has some of the other cover versions and and sort of improvisations he's done. Take a look at the YouTube site. And the number one reason I want to send you in the direction of YouTube is that in the month of August, Craig Bevan is participating in a competition where he is in the top 10, the final 10. It's the Music Crowns competition. Now, first I'm going to give you the website if you want to go straight there. But I'm also going to tell you that you can get there through Facebook. And because I'm not on Facebook, I don't really understand the dynamics of that. So all I'll do is describe it to you. But I'm also going to walk you through how to get there the way I got there. So you can see, kind of see everything on the website the way I saw it. But first, here's the URL to this particular website. First, the HTTP stuff, all that. www.musiccrowns.co.uk slash pound sign slash register hyphen two hyphen vote slash four five three eight four four seven seven nine one. Well, that's a mouthful. There's a better way to get there. 
go to the Craig Bevan Music site, www.craigbevanmusic.com. And from there, at the bottom, click on the YouTube link. From the YouTube link, which will open up YouTube at the Mr. Craig Bevan's channel, you'll be able to click on a blog post called Blog Number 2, I Need Your Help. From that blog post, first, if you've never heard Craig Bevan speak before, you'll be... Um, You'll know, you'll catch on to his personality right away. But second, just below the video that you'll see on YouTube are the websites you can click on to click right into the Facebook link to the Pop Music Crown competition and also directly to the musiccrowns.co.uk website. Now again, has to be done in the month of August. So I'm going to put this episode out a little earlier than I probably would have. And the number one motivation is getting this information into your hands now while it's still the month of August. This is not one of those spam-generating situations. You get in there, you cast your vote, you're done with it. There's a button you can click, which I did click, to say, I don't need any more information, and I haven't gotten a single unwanted piece of junk mail related to anything from the contest or any of their sponsors. It's as simple as going in, creating a you know fairly generic but somewhat you-specific username, give yourself a password so you can log back in and see results as they go if you want to, and give them an email. The only email you're going to get is the confirmation email so they can make sure the votes are coming from people who really are, well, people. Once you've done that, you get that email, you click the link that says, yes, I got this email, you've successfully logged into the Music Crowns contest, and then you can go and vote. Now, I am not going to tell you to go to this website and vote for Craig Bevan. What I'm going to tell you to do is go to this website, go to the pop section, go to the finalist section where you can cast your vote, and just listen. Just look. Look around. Catch the tunes, listen to what's there. I think what you're going to find that you're going to agree with me. And then after you've listened to all, all that you want to hear and you've made your choice and your evaluation, I don't need to tell you to vote for Craig Bevan. You're going to vote for Craig Bevan. But give yourself a chance to do that while it's still the month of August. And if you're a Facebook user, by all means, you have an opportunity to vote twice. So all you do there is you go in, you click on this link, you friend the contest, refresh your page. And then from there, I'm assuming it's pretty Facebook obvious in terms of what to do to cast that vote. Trust me, this is the most exciting new release I've heard in a long time. It's probably the most exciting new release I've heard since the 90s. Craig Bevan, I think we've made it. And to close us today, instead of the usual outro music, here's the title track of that CD. Thanks for listening. Smile is shining in my mind 
so warm Amid the cold, cold winter Our star is born Memories sweetly bitter Cause you're out of reach Now we're on this endless journey About we'll never breach Cause I'm cold within me Yet this heart is warming Cause I know you'll be waiting This journey's a lot but you will keep me holding on I'm almost home The moon dips below the tree line I'm lying next to you My legs, well, they're still shaking But to a different tune This love is all we've needed It's taking time But I think we finally made it You will be fine Cause I'm tired within me Yet these tears are ending And I know you'll be waiting This journey is long but we will keep on holding on Cause I'm tired within me Yet these tears, they're ending And I know you'll be waiting This journey's long, but you'll 